our Season 2 episode of Mars Investigated, a retrospective podcast about the television series, and I guess internet television series, Veronica Mars. I am Kevin, he is Jerome, and Jerome, how are we doing on this crisp autumn morning? Well, for you it's crisp, for me it's 90 degrees outside, so you can take your autumn and you can take your pumpkin spice and you can shove it. Well, yeah, it's been an, an unseasonably warm fall so far, I guess, for September, but I see it's going to precipitously drop in uh, next week, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm for it. I like, I like summer in general, but fall is really my jam. Uh, Kevin, here in Memphis, I'm just looking at my calendar. It's supposed to be 93 today, 95 the next two days, and then 96 degrees on Tuesday and Wednesday. Couldn't get it to the full 98 so I can make that joke, could you? Nope, couldn't do it. I will not give you the the honor and the pleasure of making a Nick Lachey joke here on this podcast where we're talking about a show that takes place in the year of our Lord, 2005 and 2006. Yes, that is right. And I was going to say fall's also been good because uh, Kristen Bell is back on our television screen, but she's been on our television screens even in the off time because we have, of course, been watching and in some ways enduring emotionally season two of Veronica Mars. Uh, which premiered on September 28th, 2005, and that is not a date I had to look up, and I will explain. I mentioned on the first episode of this podcast that it was my brother who got me into the show Veronica Mars, and at this time when it aired, he was a senior in college. Now, he was young for his age in college, and on September 28th, 2005, he turned 21 years old. Now, if we happen to have any non-United States listeners, that is a significant birth date in the United States because it is the age where you can legally consume and purchase alcohol. So because he was young for his grade, he was pretty much the last amongst his friend group to turn 21, and they were all very excited for this occasion, and on this night were ready and willing to take him out for his first legal drink, and he was more than happy to do so, but he told his friends it had to be after the series premiere of Veronica Mars. That's how much of a fan he was of the show at this time. I mean, that is some real dedication there. I was, I was thinking that there was going to be some sort of payoff where he murdered someone on a bridge or he blew a plane up. So I guess I'm a little disappointed, but I mean, that's, that's a satisfactory answer. I would, I would hope so. I think that that does show some real dedication that he's like, yes, I am. I am happy to, to oblige and celebrate and honored. However, the premiere of Veronica Mars comes first. So, I'm sure whatever torment he felt after the bus crash, he was able to uh, drink away with friends afterwards. And, or he's a really big Steve Gutenberg fan. I guess we I should ask where do you where do you want to start here? Because there's so much plot. There's there are some new characters, and I and I did read that when going into season two, Rob Thomas had it in his mind that he wanted this sort of one season story, but he also didn't want to just have a new mystery that was with the Kane family and the Eccles family again. He's like, I, I need new blood into this story. And so really, if you look at the main cast, it's really cut down to six characters from the previous season returning here. You have Veronica and her dad, you have Weevil, you have Logan, you have Duncan, and you have Wallace. And it's really just those six that are focused on. And then you have some new blood injected into these stories so do you want to talk about the characters or talk about them as we get into the stories? What are you what are you feeling right now? I think the biggest thing about season two is that there is so much plot legitimately in every episode because not only are they trying to solve a new mystery, but they are going back and dipping into season one. There's a lot of stuff with Abel Kuntz's daughter that's addressed. 
There is also material involving the Aaron Eccles trial that I did. I have forgotten that this got all the way up until the end of the season. And it was the penultimate episode when we got to the trial. So I almost think we should just kind of start with the first episode of the season and kind of branch off from there because the first season very much sets up everything that's going to happen. You mean the first episode? The first episode, yes. Yeah, so the first episode I guess we can talk about, well, I talked about the cast of those six main characters continuing to be main characters in season two, but we both get Dick and Beaver Casablancas being bumped up from supporting characters to main cast members in this season as well. And they, of course, will become very integral to the rest of the season, uh, especially Beaver, a.k.a. Cassidy, for the rest of the season as well as... uh, not a ton of character progression in young Dick uh, Casablancas, but uh, it's I, it is kind of fun to see him, and he adds a little bit of levity into some scenes at times. He does, but he's also a little rapey, and I, I'm trying. I keep trying to figure out like how did he become such a popular character, especially because a lot of the audience for this show tends to skew more female. I'm just. I'm I'm continuing to try to figure this out as we go through seasons one and two. Maybe season three will have an answer for me. Maybe it will. Uh, So I guess if we're talking about episode one, we do get that sort of bridge between what happened over the summer and what happened here to kind of bring us up to speed. Because, you know, there was that lingering mystery of who was at the door of the Mars apartment or hotel room or whatever it is that they're living in. Uh, that comes to visit Veronica at the end, and it turns out to be Logan, who had just been in a scuffle with Weevil and his gang on the bridge that he was on. It was the same bridge that his mother had jumped off and committed suicide. He was intoxicated and going to do the same because his life at this point is in quite a bit of shambles. His family life is, you know, in complete and total disarray, and he was looking to end it all. But uh, that did not come to be. I don't know. Maybe it was because I had watched the series in more of a binge mode, but I, I guess I wasn't surprised. I wasn't ever really surprised that it was Logan at the door. I think where the twist comes in is as we see how things develop and the summer goes along, which a lot of stuff from a legal standpoint happens to Logan. And I'm not sure how realistic it is that all this stuff would happen in that short amount of time. But I think we what we ultimately come to is that Veronica is no longer dating Logan at the end of the summer. And I think Logan in a lot of ways, a lot of ways in the, from a writing standpoint regresses and some of his behavior is pretty, it's pretty mortifying, especially what he does to Veronica in the apartment and Keith ultimately kicks him out of the apartment. And we, we find out by the end of the episode that Veronica is once again, dating Duncan. Yes. So I guess, uh, you know, the end of season one, they discover there was that period of time where they thought they may have been siblings. That turns out not to be the case. That's really what terminated their relationship, amongst other things uh, in in season one. But over the summer with Logan blowing up at Veronica and uh, her wanting to distance himself from him and Duncan realizing that they were not siblings and free to date again, started, uh, I don't want to say stalking, but visiting her place of work. That's another thing is Veronica started working at this place of business, which we can talk about in a second. And they started dating, which means Duncan had uh, dumped his then girlfriend, Meg, for Veronica. And uh, that that turmoil between Meg and Veronica turns out to be fortuitous for Veronica and not so not so good for Meg. But I guess we can talk about this place that Veronica works at called Java the Hut. 
you had sent me a message as watching this is kind of like, what is this place that Veronica works at? Because it seems to be this strange amalgam of different businesses put into one. Right. And the question that I had is, is it mostly known for being coffee? Because, of course, it's called Java the Hut. They apparently serve food, but they don't really serve alcohol, but they have karaoke. And my thing is, if you have karaoke, you have to have alcohol because you, you can't do one without the other from a logical standpoint. This place makes absolutely no sense. I wonder if this is kind of a California thing, if places like this do exist in midtown or mid-sized cities like Neptune, which I know, of course, isn't real, but you know what I mean. So I'm just curious to know, like, is this a place that exists in California or this type of place? Because it made zero sense to me. And I, I will say I was honestly impressed that Veronica kept this job for the entire year, because whenever you see a scenario like this, you're like, one of two things is going to happen. One, she's either going to leave or number two, the writers are going to completely forget about it. The writers did not actually forget about it. And Veronica is working there from be the beginning of the season until the end. Yeah, it seems to be like their version of the bronze from from Buffy in some respects. I think the bronze is a larger, uh, more used scenery in in Buffy in general. But this kind of feels like a default place where if a discussion needs to happen, if Veronica needs to meet up with somebody or even two characters need to meet to have a, a discussion of sorts. This is kind of where it happens. Uh, you know, there's I, I can believe a place like this would have a stage at least if they did like open mics and whatever. But I think you're right. Like having a karaoke place that alcohol sounds like a disaster, but also I don't know of a type of coffee coffee shop like this that also has a hostess job, like somebody who brings and seats people at a table with menus and such. It, it, this is such a strange thing to me, but I guess having this hostess table led for a lot of startling and unexpected moments where Veronica could look up and there's Duncan or there's Tessa Thompson or there's, another Casablancas or something like that. But really aside from fulfilling that on a couple different episodes, it is illogical in, in from my experiences in coffee shops to have a hostess like this. Yeah, that's been my experience too. And I'm not a big coffee drinker, but I know what a coffee shop looks like. And folks, this is not how a coffee shop works. No, not at all. Uh, but also in season one, we are introduced to the Goodman family. We're introduced to Woody Goodman, who is played by Steve Gutenberg. He owns the Neptune Sharks baseball team, so that's another thing. I don't remember if they've mentioned the Neptune Sharks in passing. Like, you know, maybe Keith talked about them in season one at all. But this is where we get to see the actual stadium, meet the owner of the team, who in general seems to be a pretty pleasant and aff affable guy. Keith is a, a, a fan of the team and a, and a fan of his. And he is also planning on becoming the, the mayor of Neptune. Now, I know the, the position is not called the mayor of Neptune, but... That's what it's kind of known offhand by pretty much everybody else. And he wants to work with Keith to get him back into the position of sheriff. So Steve in general is a, a pretty likable guy at this point in the season when we first get to meet him. Because who doesn't like Steve Gutenberg in general? I can never think of Steve Gutenberg and not think of the Stonecutters. That's just what happens. That's how my brain works. So immediately when I saw him on the show, that's that's where my head went to, because here we have another case of a 1980s kind of superstar being put into this role where he's a supporting character on the show. We saw this with Harry Hamlin in season one. We would see him in season two as well. But Steve Gutenberg is another example of this. And I think he does a really good job of just kind of bringing some credibility 
to the show. And I think that's what you want from an older actor like this is you want him to uh, bring that credibility. And I, I kind of like the position that he serves because on the surface, just like with a lot of characters on Veronica Mars, he seems like this very nice person. But as it turns out with Veronica Mars, everybody on the show is awful. Yeah, not everybody is as they seem. And he has a daughter, Gia Goodman, who is kind of your classic prototype of a high school girl, I kind of think, in these TV shows. Boys more than homework, but still a good student, still kind of a a good doer a bit, but she does dip her toes within some of the bad boys, that kind of character. I had watched Breaking Bad before I had watched Veronica Mars, so I knew of Kristen Ritter, who plays this character, and of course would go on to be Jessica Jones, the titular character of that show. But it was interesting watching Breaking Bad and her being a pretty despicable character in that show to watching her be this sort of do-gooder high school girl in Veronica Mars. Um, I I don't know if she's undercast or miscast in this role, but I definitely get the sense based on her work in Jessica Jones that she is much more comfortable kind of playing the sarcastic asshole. And it's funny that she also went on to play a P.I. just like Veronica Mars is – a pseudo-PI, at least in, in these first couple seasons. But I really like Kristen Ritter. I don't necessarily know if I like her in this role specifically. I think she's generally okay. And I think one of the, one of the things that has always struck me is that Kristen Bell and the chemistry that she has with some of the other characters, I, I've always felt like she more so has chemistry with a lot of the female characters than a lot of the male characters, and I think this is a really good example of it. And we'll talk about another example in just a minute, but that's something that I've noticed across all four seasons of Veronica Mars. Interesting. But I think the the big mystery of the season unravels at the end of this. This is a school field trip, I should mention, this this visit to the, the Neptune Sharks Stadium. And on the way home, there's a circumstance where... Some of the people on the school bus take the school bus back, but some of the rich kids, not liking the the smell, a stench that was on the bus, decide to call themselves a private limo to go back to school. And again, this is uh, an instance of the haves and have-nots. And well, the bus crashes. There's an explosion, and it goes over the uh, into the Pacific Ocean. And that is the big mystery because uh, I, I guess it's not revealed that there was an explosion so much in the first episode, but really it becomes a who done it who who caused this bus crash in with those who are on the bus and though, and everything else, there's a lot of different people who fingers are being pointed to as the culprit behind this bus crash. Well, I like that they, they really go out of their way to pull in a number of threads. They talk about the bus driver in a future episode. They talk about like whose fault, who were they going after? Veronica thinks that she is being held responsible for being a rat because they find a rat on the bus we get introduced to this mafia group, the Fitzpatricks. There's a lot of different directions that they can go into with some of the students who were on the bus and kind of the things that they left behind. In fact, one of the episodes I think kind of echoes or was echoed by the the TV show 13 Reasons Why as far as leaving recordings behind of a, of a radio show, of a pirate radio show. Um, Veronica Mars is way better, just for the record. But yeah, I think that they were they were able to take this in a lot of different directions, expose us to new characters. And part of me wonders if this this mystery could have sustained the whole season. I think it could have. But they they definitely went in a lot of different directions in this season. And I think some of it worked. I think some of it towards the end didn't work. But I think this is a very good mystery to kind of get us away from the Eccles family and 
from the Kane family, even though Logan and Duncan were still a part, at least of the first half of the season. I think it's really important for a show like this to go in a new direction just so it doesn't get stale. I agree. And I, and I agree with you too, that the one thing I liked about season one is that you sort of had your villain of the week episodes, but really the, the murder of Lily Kane was the central focus. And I think too many times in season two, you had the side plot with, the death of one of the PCHers on the bridge. You had Abel Koontz pop in for an episode. You had Aaron Eccles' trial. And then you had, like, the, the sheriff re-election and whatnot. Just too many other things that, like you said, some good, some bad. some But it, it muddied the waters in a lot of way, and I think it kind of did take the focus off the bus crash at times, which I think you're right with, with the way it was written, which I thought was superbly done, with who was and wasn't on the bus being of, of much importance uh, that that it could have been the sole story again for season two and been just fine. And the rest of the stuff uh, with varying degrees of success or, or non-success, too much to take. And it got very confusing at times. This is a, a really complicated season to take notes on, I got to say. I mean, and that's why I gave you season two so that you could do the really hard season and then get to swoop in and get the easier season three, which has, which has nowhere near the amount of plot. But I mean, there, there, there's just a lot going on and you could see why the CW may, had forced them to transition from these long extended stories to more stories of the week, which is what we'll get in season three. Because it's just really hard to keep track of. And again, I mentioned season one working really well in a binge. I don't understand how you can watch season two and not just watch it in a binge because it's really hard to keep track of. I mean, there were definitely episodes where the recap of the season would take up like three minutes. Yeah, there was, I forget which episode they said, but there, like, there was one that had, like, an unusually long one, and it was about the three or four minute mark. Uh, I watched this on DVD the whole season, and they omitted a lot of the previously ons from those episodes, I think, because they expected it to be watched in a binge format. So I had to do a lot of my own mental gymnastics remembering certain things as we piece things together. I kind of wish I had the previously ons. Uh, but you did mention that Duncan Kane goes away half of the season. That's one thing that happens with the bus crash is the only survivor at the time of the crash is Meg, who is in a coma and Veronica discovers is pregnant. Meg passes away from the blood clot, but her baby survives and it is Duncan's baby. That, of course, causes some rift between Veronica, but because of a wish from Meg that her parents do not get to be in charge of what her daughter's fate is. And then we later find out her parents are monsters who mentally abuse her younger sister. Veronica does aid in Duncan fleeing the country with his daughter. And that essentially takes him out of the show entirely. So you kind of get rid of, of Meg because she passes away and you kind of get rid of Duncan. So if there was any fans of this love triangle between Logan, Duncan and Veronica, I apologize, but at some, in some respects, because of the way the season went, I was, I was okay with Duncan going away i always had a hard time looking at how duncan contributed to the show and even though veronica and duncan were together very similarly to how veronica's mom was around in the last episode and you forgot about it there are definitely times where i was like oh right they're together because duncan was not really involved in a lot of the solving of the mysteries and that is always very strange to me when you have this relationship going on and he's just very uninvolved and i i think that that's what makes their plot line so so difficult but i i understand the mechanics of putting them back together so that 
when Duncan leaves, and there's sort of a cathartic moment with those two being able to end things kind of on a happy note. And Veronica is invested in getting Duncan out. And there's a good reason because I think they set this up really well. They set up the fact that Meg's parents are so awful. The reason that I really appreciated what they did is basically they had a whole episode where they did talk about the sister and Sheriff Lamb, who is one of the most hated characters, who is literally one of the worst people in this town and his behavior is reprehensible. Even Sheriff Lamb looks at Meg's parents and is like, these people are monsters. And I think that is that was the that was a really great shorthand away of the show telling you that these people are truly awful and that Duncan running away with this child going to Australia, that is the right move because these parents are so bad. So I think the way that they set this up and the way they positioned it was really smart. And I do not like season two as much as season one, but episode 11 season two is singularly my favorite episode of the entire series. Is that nobody puts baby in a corner? That is the one where nobody puts baby in the corner. That is the episode where Veronica and Duncan have their fake breakup. And it's all a big fake out because they are just trying to get Duncan out of there. And my favorite aspect to that, to that episode, especially on the rewatch is the fact that Vincent Van Lowe actually knows what's going on. We got Ken Marino returning. He basically figures out what's going on. And in the end, he helps Duncan to escape. Okay, so I was actually wrong. That episode is Donut Run. Nobody puts Baby in the Corners where they discover that Meg's parents were mentally abusing her. Oh, yeah, sister, yes, yes, yes. Which has, like, one of the most bone-chilling endings of Veronica Mars this season. Like, the music, the way it ends, like, really left me in a very uncomfortable state. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's that's that might be the second, my second or third favorite. I mean, put favorite in quotes. It's not that I'm enjoying it, but I think it's it's just a really well-made episode of television. It is, and yeah, I, I like that they, they sometimes give the the scumbag people in Veronica Mars these so-called babyface moments, like your Vincent Van Lowe helping Duncan, and like you said, with... with I, I even have a section in my notes just set aside for how awful of a person Sher- Sheriff Lamb is, and but that was like his one and only redeeming moment of the series at this time. Let's get into the Casablanca's family, because that does play a pivotal role there. We talked about how... Uh, Dick and Beaver, a.k.a. Cassidy, become get a bigger role here. We also get introduced to their father, Richard Casablancas, also known as Big Dick, and his new wife, uh, his trophy wife, Kendall Casablancas, played by Charisma Carpenter, best known, I think, to you and I as Cordelia Chase or Cordy from Buffy the Vampire Slayer and later Angel. And I have to say, if you take the Cordelia chase from Buffy before she grows up and matures an angel. If you take her and put her as an adult, I think charisma Carpenter, who she plays as Kendall Casablancas is exactly what I would expect Cordelia chase to be like as a trophy wife. They pretty much nailed this casting in every conceivable way from the Valley girl kind of behavior to the look. I mean, they just, they just nailed this role and it is worth saying that charisma Carpenter they said that she was 25 on the show. She was actually 35 when she was filming this. So that should also tell you something about Miss Carpenter as well. Like it's timeless. Like she looked pretty much the same as she did in season one of Buffy from 1997 here in 2005. And yet she was, she was incredible. She was a perfectly detestable trophy wife, but of course a little bit smarter than we may expect with some connections 
that even her Casablanca's family did not know about. But she gets a, an even bigger role here because uh, Beaver Cassidy, who is definitely the run of the litter, emasculated at every point, both by his father and his brother where he can, decides to hire Veronica to both expose his father as a con man because he's been stealing money entrusted to his real estate company, while also at the same time bringing attention that Kendall was having an affair, which both forced his father to flee the country and gave Beaver access to his trust fund. So we're at this point in the in the season we're seeing Beaver as the the runt of the family who's who gets treated like garbage, but he's quite smart and he uh, uses those smarts to get access to this trust fund. And it, there's there's some smarts behind this man. Part of me wonders if he was almost written too smart, especially the way the finale was executed. But they were clearly going somewhere with Cassidy and Dick because moving them from supporting characters into the main credits. I mean, you don't do that unless you have a very specific purpose. And Cassidy was a a focal point of a number of episodes and he kind of had his own real estate thing going on at one point. And we see what a role he played in the finale with the big reveal. But I know that there is a very heartbreaking aspect because we see some young love developing between Cassidy and Mac. And I know that, I know that this is tough for you to talk about. Why would it be tough for me to talk about? Because Cassidy is a mon- monster and Mac is like your favorite character. Mac is a great character and it is one of those relationships where you watch it and you kind of feel good for for Cassidy because he is being bullied a lot by his brother and his friends and he's finally finding somebody who likes him for who he is and sees the generosity and smartness in him. But there's still something about Mac and Cassie that doesn't feel quite right. Like those two puzzle pieces don't exactly align perfectly. But then once you get to the end of the season and see that the way I interpret it was his relationship with Mac was one of the many tactics he used to throw Veronica Mars off of his scent. Then it makes sense like, okay, you weren't supposed to always think they fit together so tightly. I don't I didn't think but there or at least there's a reason that I felt some uneasiness with that with that couple. Would you agree with that? I would agree with that, and especially on rewatching, knowing how it ends up, it is really uncomfortable to watch the scenes between those two, and it's really not comfortable watching the scenes between Cassidy and Veronica as well. And as as far as uh, Beaver Cassidy goes, I don't want to say that this is aged well, because that would imply that it's a positive thing, but I think this idea of emasculation, especially among a, a certain group of people, I think that is something that does play in 2019, and these are issues that are still being dealt with, and the violence results from that results from these folks thinking that that they're never going to get have sex or whatever, and I think that that is unfortunately something that is still relevant 14 years later. It's really relevant today. There was even I was listening to an interview on Mark Maron's podcast by this uh, this guy who pretty much wrote he wrote this book about how 4chan and Reddit basically led to this rise of like why they like Trump so much and, uh, you know, their their hatred towards females and all this other stuff. It, It seems like a really fascinating read. But watching back to this and seeing how bullying and and shaming of people at a very young age can really warp their mind and and turn them into this 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 person and uh, I, we'll we'll talk about it when we get to the finale here but i also think they needed something for cassie to not seem to some audience members sympathetic and i think they nailed it but again we'll get to that in a little bit 
some other new characters that come in is the Cook family. You have uh, Terrence Cook, played by Jeffrey Sams, who's a famous ex-baseball player. The reading I got from him is this is somewhat of a Michael Jordan parable because he also has, uh, well, I guess for Michael Jordan, it's alleged. I'm not sure if anything's come to light, but he has his gambling debts, his gambling problems. Also, a sort maybe can be um, related to Pete Rose because I believe that it comes out that he's somewhat of a disgraced baseball player because he threw a game for gambling problems. Uh, but he is part of the the Neptune Sharks empire, and uh, that's where he stands at this point in the in the beginning of the season. Can I just say, Kevin, this is my proudest moment of us podcasting because you just talked about sports and you almost sounded like you knew what you were talking about. Almost. What did I get wrong? You didn't get anything wrong, but like I could tell there was a little bit of unease when you were talking, especially about Michael Jordan, because what so what happened with Michael Jordan is he retired in October of 1993. He said that he was retiring because he lost his passion for the game. But there is a conspiracy theory that basically the commissioner of the National Basketball Association told him to go away for a couple of years and come back because of all the gambling and all that stuff. And funny enough, Michael Jordan actually would go on to play baseball uh, for the Chicago White Sox. And that's kind of how that ended up. And of course, the Pete Rose thing is one of the most famous gambling incidents ever because it got him banned for baseball for life. And I think they, they did a really solid job of building up Terrence Cook from the beginning, clearly setting up tension between him and Woody Goodman and eventually involving his daughter, Jackie, and everything that came with that. So I, I thought it was it was a nice side plot because not only did Terrence play an important role in potentially blowing up the bus, but I also like that he helped to expand this world beyond just what we had known. There, there seemed to be a more conscious effort to bring people of color onto the second season, which they kind of lose that in the middle part of it. But between having Terrence Cook uh, played by Jeffrey Sams, Jackie Cook played by Tessa Thompson, and I noticed some of the assistants and some of the police officers were also people of color. So I wonder if that was a conscious decision. It could be. And it is also interesting, like, I feel like they had the one relationship with Wallace be an interracial one. But in general, it seems like he had a proclivity to stick within his race for those relationships as well. Including Terrence Cook's daughter, Jackie, played by, I don't know, this this little known actor named Tessa Thompson. I don't know what happened to her. You know, it's it's really funny because I remember watching this on DVD and I legitimately thought to myself, how is this person not the biggest star in the world. And this was like 2008, 2009. And I was just like, like, what's up with that? And it would take a couple of years, but she definitely blew up to the point where she is in Marvel movies. And I guess that the way that I've always kind of thought of her role in the series is she's kind of like Faith, played by Eliza Dushku on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. She also reminds me a little bit of Joey from Dawson's Creek, but she is kind of playing this role. And in a bizarre way, she's almost too charismatic for the role that she's playing because especially when she's in those scenes with Veronica, I mean, she is just as charismatic and has just as much personality, if not more so as Veronica. And I think that's why they had to put her on the bench for a few episodes because they just simply couldn't have her around because she was that good. I mean, she kills it in this role. And I know that there are some people in the Veronica Mars universe that don't like her character. And I think those people are insane. I think Tessa Thompson rules in this role. Definitely. And we really, now at this point, we've touched on the five 
characters that they really introduced I, that I think are the biggest ones. You have the two Goodman family members, the two Cook family members, and Kendall Casablancas. And I think across the board, excellent casting in all five of those roles. Oh, they nailed it. I mean, they, they really nailed all five of these roles. And I think you really had to because these five characters played very distinctive roles. And I think Jeffrey Sams doesn't really get as much to do as the other characters. And I think the role that he is playing, he's definitely much more, it, he's much more passive and responding to the other characters, whereas I think the other characters are much more aggressive and taking the initiative, especially Jackie and Kendall to an extent. But I mean, I think they did a they did a spectacular job, and you know, I think what they were able to do with Beaver and Dick as well, the fact that those two were cast in this role in season one, and the fact that they were elevated and were still able to do as good of a job as they did, I think speaks to the the quality of the casting. And I think it's a good reason why Rob Thomas carries so many of his cast members from show to show. I know that's a pretty that's a pretty common thing with people, but. I obviously think if they weren't easy to work with and weren't good, they would be gone as he jumped from project to project too. So I think it says a lot that he keeps a lot of these people in the family. We can't talk about Jackie Cook without talking about Wallace as they're in a relationship for a good portion of the season. I'm going to throw out this sort of loaded question to you. In general, what were your feelings on Wallace in season two? I have never felt like they understood how to write Wallace after season one. I feel like in season one, because he was involved in the office and he was able to get Veronica a lot of resources, I felt like he was really useful as far as the plot machinations go. But in season two, and even into season three and the movie and season four, I don't think you get a lot of Wallace and Veronica interacting as far as the plot goes. And it feels like they really had to shoehorn him in at certain points. And the fact that he, I mean, just like Jackie goes away for a number of episodes, Wallace goes to Chicago for a few episodes and it's like his presence is barely even missed in Veronica's life. I mean, of course she gets emotional when she sees him again, but it just feels like they never were really able to handle Wallace in a way where he was connected to the plot and where he was helping Veronica. And I don't know if that's necessarily a weakness of the show because Veronica has very much always been much more of an um, of a solo character as opposed to Buffy, where the where the thing was is that she had her Scooby Gang, and her Scooby Gang is what kept her sane. I mean, there was there was entire episodes dedicated to this fact. You don't necessarily get that in this show. Veronica, uh, the person that she ultimately has a close relationship with, is her father, and even that st- starts to fray a little bit as she does things that her father does not approve of, but. I appreciated what they were trying to do with Wallace and Jackie and trying to keep them involved, but it it just never felt like they really had a handle of what Wallace and Veronica's relationship should be. Uh, The thing with Wallace too, I agree with everything you said, but I feel like there was so much, there's so many things he did that made me dislike him. And I felt like there was almost no consequences of his actions. Well, especially they start the season with this whole mystery of, of him discovering who his birth father is. And like you said, they go to Chicago for a bit. Then he just comes back and that's the end of that story. They don't even bring his mom up very much in the rest of the season until we see her in the audience cheering him on when he graduates high school. But then he's with Tessa Thompson. They like each other. They, they're dating, but he goes away. So they kind of break up. You kind of feel bad for us because you see Tessa like with somebody else at 
um, Jabba the Hutt. But then, like, Wallace gets weirdly jealous about this, even though they're not together when she's dancing with Logan at a dance. He starts dating this other girl, but then at another dance, he immediately brushes her aside and dismisses her to go kiss Jackie without her consent. But then they end up together, so there's no consequences for that. And then by the end, basically revealed that the reason Jackie came from New York to California is she had a a daughter back home that her birth mother was going to take care of and was trying to get her to start a new life in California. But she realizes that New York and her daughter is where she needs to be. And so Wallace, and I put this in quotes, loses her by the end of season two. But at the same time, I'm like, I'm I'm sort of glad Wallace didn't get what he wanted because I don't feel like he acted like somebody I was all that big of a fan of in season two. I think they kind of did Jackie dirty too at the end, just having this big reveal that she has a daughter that she abandoned for almost a year. And just the way that she behaved early on, it was just, it was really bizarre. I would love to know if they had planned this from the very beginning, if Rob Thomas had planned this right at the start. I mean, man, I just, I really have a problem with the way that they treated Jackie at the, at the end there, because they just kind of wrote her off and she will play no role. She is not, she's not in season three. She's not in the movie. She's not in season four. So I don't know. I, I really feel like they, they underserved those characters. And I, I think that that's one of the reasons that, that Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was on the writing staff for season four for, for that specific reason, because I don't, I don't know if Rob Thomas exactly handles um, characters of color that well. It does feel like a very unsatisfying conclusion to her story because I don't think it's a spoiler. As you as you mentioned, she doesn't come back. She kind of comes in, steals the show, and then she's gone, and that's the end of that. It's very and that's peculiar. the end of that chapter. Yeah. So let's get into this this other story plotline we had mentioned: the murder of Felix Tombs. That's the the PCH gang member that uh, Logan Eccles had supposedly killed. He uh, got beaten up by them and woke up, and there was a knife in his hand, and this guy next to him dead. So. That put two and two together, but he goes on trial. There's not enough evidence to convict him. And of course, uh, him being released was seen as uh, another widening between the have and have nots as the lower class saw this as here's another white boy getting away with murder. But Weevil, you know, the leader of the gang that we know from season one, he was trying to figure out who it is that really killed Felix, found out it was another gang member. Uh, Weevil and Logan kind of teamed up to try to figure out who this was, which is which Weevil's gang members didn't like. Uh, they, you know, Weevil tried to keep that a secret, but they discovered this. Weevil didn't like that they were having involvement with this Fitzpatrick family, who's this other crime family in in Neptune. It basically leads to Weevil getting jumped out. Uh, he ends up discovering that one of the other gang members, Thumper, killed Felix, and Weevil does a pretty harsh thing because uh, one of the other things is the original stadium for the Neptune Sharks is getting exploded. And Weevil gets it so that Thumper is in the stadium when it is demolished. Talk about an exit for a character. Yeah, that, that that is one hell of a way to go. And I assume that we'll address the Logan part of this because, boy, do I do I have problems with that. But the Weevil stuff, I mean... I, I am a very of, of a very, very mixed feeling on this because I feel like Weevil, just like Wallace, is kind of being underserved. I appreciate the fact that he does have something to do. He does kind of have his own thread, and there's there's a plot line for him. But what we get is there is this idea that Weevil wants to graduate so that his grandmother can see him graduate. And basically, the payoff for this storyline is that he gets arrested, and there's this very unsatisfactory moment, and that's kind of the payoff 
to this plot line, and we really don't get a sense of what's going on with the PCHers once their part of this is resolved. Once the Fitzpatricks and the PCHers are separated, we really don't see how the PCHers interact with each other after that. And I think that that is part of the issue is that the first half of season two and even a, a few episodes after, I think this, this show is really firing on all cylinders. And I think in a lot of ways, it's better than season one. But I think those last couple of episodes, I really think do a disservice to some of these plot lines. We, you mentioned the Wallace one. I really think Weevils is kind of in the same boat in that the final episodes really don't do these characters well and so much of it is focused on what's going on with veronica as it should be but then ultimately it's really hard to pay off everything that they've done because there is so much going on in this season yeah uh we will definitely just kind of fall into that same boat where i kind of like like the like you see a lot of, of insight into what he thinks here in terms of how he relates to his fellow gang members, but he still does have a conscious and a little bit of a, a heart and soul. And, you know, there's even this one point where they discover that the reason that, uh, that Felix was killed is because he was dating the niece of one of the Fitzpatrick family members. And we, and she says something like, I loved him and Weevil blows up and says, I loved him. That's why, that's why I'm the one who's really trying to figure out he was killed. And I think that gives a lot of insight into Felix. And I think about like, it was, Definitely a really unpleasant and dick move of Sheriff Lamb to arrest Weevil as graduation. But at the same time, Weevil left somebody to be blown up in a baseball stadium. So how do you reconcile those two things, you know? Right. And I think that this show is very bittersweet. And this is going to be important for people to keep in mind as, as we continue to move on and talk about this series is the idea that there are not a lot of happy endings because – there are definitely moments in season two where people we thought were good turn out to be bad and where people who we are rooting for turn out to do some pretty awful things. Weevil and, and Wallace both do some pretty awful things and Veronica even does some things the way that she helps Duncan escape. So I really like that moment when Keith tells Veronica that he cannot trust her anymore. And that's not something that's really addressed again. So I think that's that is also something where we should have gotten more from that because I think there was a story or two to be told, but it's like they wanted to have that moment, but they didn't really want to have Keith and Veronica not talking to each other either. Yeah, I that was I don't even remember what it was that caused him to lose her uh, the trust of her at this point because she's helping Duncan to escape. That's the that's one. right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, they don't really address why they he she gets his trust back or if he gets the the trust back from from Keith. I think it's clear that she does because of the way the rest of the season plays out. But yeah, what a what a peculiar moment there. But I, there is something I did find satisfactory. I think we did mention the trial of Aaron Eccles at some point. You know, he's in prison for a lot of this, but eventually we get in the penultimate episode. He is put on trial for the murder of Lily Kane. He fabricates this story about Duncan killing his own sister. He has his history of mental problems and stuff to make that uh, believable. Veronica offering the incriminating tapes to Aaron in exchange for sex. And that's why Keith found them together when he went to go find Veronica at the end of season one. The jury bought this story and he's let go free. And that's obviously a, a, a heart-wrenching, stomach-dropping moment to be sure. And then later in the finale, 
uh, Aaron finds himself on a, or I guess Veronica finds herself on an elevator with Aaron, where he basically admits in a very callous manner to Veronica that he did indeed murder Lily Kane. Uh, but fortunately, we, the audience, get a very cathartic moment as Aaron Eccles, who at this point is um, having sex with uh, Kendall Casablancas, uh, is alone watching himself on the television, smoking a cigar in a very proud of himself moment when from behind we get the return of Clarence Weedman. I think his only appearance in this season, perhaps maybe like the second appearance where he kills Aaron two uh, gunshots to the back of the head. And this was by order of Duncan Kane, who was on the beach with their daughter in Australia, enjoying his time. So even if Aaron was technically let go, he is killed by Clarence Weedman. And that is the end of him. I can say that, especially after the him go, getting away scot-free in prison, seeing him get his comeuppance by Clarence Weedman, I found to be very satisfying. Well, I think what you get a lot of at the end of season two is you get a lot of closing of loops. And by basically killing everyone at the end of season two, they don't have to bring them up again in season three. And that's exactly <laughs> what happens here as Aaron Eccles is killed by Clarence Weedman. We had seen Clarence Weedman one time before in the episode where they are trying to find, find Abel Kuntz's daughter. That was his first appearance. And we kind of get some buddy cop stuff with Weedman and Veronica that I think is very funny. But even that episode, I'm going to sidetrack here. That episode actually has a very dark payoff in that Abel Kuntz's daughter is dead. She's not just dead. She's chopped up and put into a hotel freezer, like an ice, uh, like ice cooler thing. I mean, anybody who thinks this show is happy-go-lucky is absolutely insane because it's it's just not true. I will say that there is a, there is an Easter egg moment that I'm not sure if you caught this, Kevin, but when Clarence and Duncan have their conversation, it's Duncan that says CW is the deal done. And Clarence says, yes. And the CW is of course the network that Veronica Mars would be on in season three. So I, I remember him saying that, but I did not catch that that was sort of a multi-purpose line. That's fantastic. That is a, that is a very good line. And you know, I'm just trying to picture Duncan on the beach with his daughter ordering the murders of people, and that's a pretty amusing sight to me. And, and again, I think even if they're taking him off the show, I think they do a good job of keeping his name clean and uh, having him have a happy ending. He's not killed off like a lot of these other characters are, so he gets to... And, his... and again, he is also somebody that is not seen, so right. let's assume he's happy, and hopefully that they never bring him back, because they will <laughs> kill him if they bring him back. Probably. Uh, but yeah, I, I thought that wrapping up the Ariana Eccles thing was very satisfactory. And I think that's actually a side story that they did um, satisfactorily take care of. And yet, like, like you had mentioned, uh, they bring up Abel Kuntz. He is, he, uh, he passes away, <clears throat> but even you see a, a nice side of Veronica where he's unable to, to find his daughter, obviously where she finds her, but she's dead. And, but he does not let Abel know that she is dead, but rather that she is happy, but she just couldn't make it to see him in time. So at least he gets to die with the peace of mind that his daughter is okay, as opposed to telling him the truth. So that's good, at least, right? That is that is very good news. Uh, I think we I think we need to get to the bus crash though. Yes, because that, there's there's so much. That's exactly where I was going next. Was the the bus crash is of course the big mystery here. We already talked about Meg was on there. There's a couple different people on this bus that kind of leads to pointing the fingers. Uh, Terrence Cook is disgraced and blamed for the bus crash because there was a student named Leslie who he apparently had had a one night stand with, and she was threatening to go public with their relationship. And I guess a, a, a way to get Clarence to commit to her. So, of course, there is benefit to him having her die in the bus crash. But his name eventually gets cleared because they have 
This casino owner clears name saying that he was in his casino at the time of the, the bus crash, so he couldn't have been around to detonate the bus. But that essentially makes him an indentured servant to the casino for the rest of his life. And that's why he uh, has Jackie. Jackie was eventually going to stay in Neptune, but he says that she can't. And so she decides to go back to New York instead of, I guess her plan was to go to Paris at some point. So anyways, Terrence's name gets cleared. Uh, but for the longest time, people are thinking uh, we, it's discovered that Woody Goodman, uh, good guy Woody Goodman, has a history of uh, molesting some of the young boys on the Neptune Sharks, like their, their version of a, a, a Little League team including uh, these two students, Peter and Marcos, who are on the bus. And when Woody became mayor, they felt like now was the time to come forward with this. And, of course, there's some benefit to him having them killed on the bus crash because then that secret would not come out. And there's also this side story with this janitor who had been stalking their family named Lucky, who also, like, uh, was apparently molested as a young boy. And his whole story was very odd. And he ends up getting killed, too. I feel like that actor who played Lobo, has been a casino owner in like three or four different movies and TV shows, and it kind of sucks that an indigenous person gets kind of stocked into those kinds of roles. And it's it's very stereotypical. And there was even there was even a show that I watched this past week, Stumptown, that also had kind of the stereotypical indigenous people owning a casino and kind of being dicks to people. So it's, that's not something that I'm necessarily a fan of, but I think the stuff with Woody Goodman, I think that it pays off really well. I mean, it's really, I guess really dark stuff. Again, this is a network television show and the fact that he is molesting kids. I mean, this is, this is a really big deal because even though it's not directly related to priests doing this, you know, the, the, a lot of those scandals were just starting to come out around the same time. So I'm sure that that's one of the reasons that Rob Thomas went with this storyline. And you just realize what a truly awful person Woody is. And I, I do appreciate the fact that they closed the loop on that and had a, had a relatively satisfactory ending to it. I think that there's so much to do with the bus crash. And I liked a lot of the threads, but some of the clunkiness of the finale had to do with the bus as well, because I don't know the scene on the rooftop. Again, it's a network TV show. It just, it felt very clunky in some of its execution, even though I think the payoff was pretty satisfactory. I think that there was definitely some, some oddness there. Well, okay. So let's talk about that finale right now. The, the episode is called not pictured. And the reason it's called not pictured is because Veronica discovers that it is Cassidy who blew up the bus because she goes to, I forget this too, that there's a franchise of restaurants called Woody's named after him. And there's some memorabilia from the baseball team, including some photos of Little League. And she's kind of going through all the, the players one by one, talking to them, discovering where they are at this point. And she sees at the bottom of the photo, not pictured Casty Casablancas. And I have to say, even knowing the ending of the season, when they showed that again, and the, the way the music drops and it zooms in on Veronica's face, still brought that sinking that sinking feeling to my stomach, especially when Veronica realizes, oh crap, Cassidy's with Mac right now. It is a harrowing, really fantastically well shot moment. And that moment specifically, I think it does work because it just clicks in everyone's mind. I mean, I don't think anyone would have even guessed Cassidy, but in the end, it really made so much sense. And the rooftop scene, again, you can, as I mentioned, we talked about how they really hit home that Cassidy was this emasculated person his whole life. And you can, and there's a, a point where you could feel sympathetic for him, perhaps with the way that he turned out. 
But they did add this one wrinkle in there to make it so there could be absolutely no sympathy for him. And it also ties a loose end on something else from season one, where Veronica, she learns that she has chlamydia, then learns that Woody has chlamydia when her and her father are going through his records. And she puts it together that if he raped Cassidy, then he has a chlamydia too. And thus Veronica discovered that it was Cassidy who raped her at the party in season one and gave her chlamydia too. Uh, Like we said, folks, quite a dark season. Yeah, I think that so much of what made the assault so dark is the fact that it took us two seasons to resolve it. And they, they kind of went away from it and I perhaps to make you forget about it. You know, I think it is it's it's finally referenced in the episode when Veronica goes to Hearst College and she mentions it. And then I think it's one or two episodes later where she finds out she has chlamydia. So it's definitely something that they kind of left behind, but then they bring it back up so that they can kind of pay this off specifically. And it's really dark. And I'm not going to say that it it totally works, but I certainly think that having this one aspect to Cassidy really makes you understand that this person is also just like, (laughs) just like so many people in Neptune, Cassidy is a monster and having him do what he did and committing suicide. I mean, there's no redeemable qualities to the character. Once he does that, or once we find out he does that, there is no way that he can be redeemed because this is our main character. This is the person that we are meant to be most sympathetic to. Well, unless we forget his one final act is blowing up Woody Goodman's plane, which all well and good. He has his reasons to be angry at Woody Goodman uh, and blowing up his plane and getting rid of him. So yet another death on the show. But at this time, Keith had apprehended Woody Goodman and Veronica knew that her dad was on that airplane with him, as did Cassidy. And that's why he blew it up. And I got to say, the acting from Kristen Bell in this whole scene, once this all goes down, I think is some of her best work on the show today. Yeah, I, I don't know if the show itself should have ever been nominated for an Emmy, but I could certainly make the argument that Kristen Bell deserved to be nominated for an Emmy for her work on the show, especially this season. Definitely. And fortunately, Logan saves her. She's able to one hand text as Cassidy is is talking to her and threatening to take her life because he has a gun on him. And the one thing I also really like about this is that Veronica has the gun and is ready to, to kill Cassidy because, well, she did. He did just kill her father and raped her. But the one thing I like that Logan says to her is to, to kind of talk her off the proverbial ledge, which is ironic, given that what Cassidy does right after and kills himself. But he just tells her. You're not a killer. He's not absolving any blame from Cassidy. He's not putting down that saying that her feelings are incorrect or wrong or whatever else or misplaced. It's just that you are not a killer. And that is his one reason to to have her stop from shooting Cassidy. And I really like that, that that was the that was the way he got her to, to put the gun down. After a season of Logan, Logan making awful, awful decisions and generally being a terrible person and gaslighting someone, he finally redeems himself in the end. Yes, and in the end, uh, we have Veronica graduating from high school. Her and Logan end up back together. Her graduation gift from Keith is them to go on a trip to New York together. But just as Keith is about to leave the, the Mars Investigations offices to go see her, Kendall Casablancas comes in with a briefcase. She shows him what's inside. We don't see it in a, in a Pulp Fiction type of moment. And we end the season with Veronica waiting for her father at the airport gate. 
Uh, I don't buy that he would not either communicate with her. I don't buy that he would just skip out on the Kendall Casablanca's thing. I really did not like that ending. I just think it really did the show a real disservice, especially after they have this big moment. And I, I get that Rob Thomas is going for something that's kind of bittersweet, but I just, from a character standpoint, I've never bought that he wouldn't tell her what he was doing. Yeah, I agree with that too. There, And of course he's a PI. Yeah, there's some way he can get in touch with her. That's... It's a little, it's a little ridiculous in, in many ways. I mean, I just don't buy the fact that he wouldn't skip out on the, like, I, I assume that it was money that was in the briefcase. I just don't believe that he would just like, especially at this point, after everything they've been through, after this big emotional moment, I just don't believe that the money would be more important than going on a trip with his daughter. Yeah, I, I would completely agree with that. It's it's a very odd way to end this season, especially after we do discover Keith is alive. I guess I should have mentioned that. Uh, circumstances kept him from getting on the, the helicopter and he drove back to, to Neptune. So all is well there. So for that to happen, that big moment to happen, and then for him to presumably skip out on this vacation with Veronica is weird. Does like does not fit. Does not so, compute. Yeah. The last thing I want to mention before I wrap up is some of the guest stars from the season. And man, for a lot of these guest stars, it feels like they reached into the, the Kevin and Jerome pleasure centers of shows we've enjoyed in the past and just pulled out some of those creators and, and guest actors there. You've got Michael Sarah and uh, Aaliyah Shawkat from Arrested Development. You've got Joss Whedon as a rental car supervisor. You've got Kevin Smith playing a clerk at a convenience store. That's a, nice... a real stretch for him. Let me <laughs> I know, it really is. Obviously, that's a nice play into uh, his, of course, his first movie, Clerks, and his previous life of being a clerk, making that movie possible. But my understanding is that both Kevin Smith and Joss Whedon at this time were very outspoken fans of Veronica Mars, and that is why Rob Thomas reached out to them to be guest stars on this show. Um, well, at least Joss Whedon wasn't playing a feminist because we know he couldn't act his way out of that. <sighs> you just had to bring that up, didn't you? Uh, somebody was going to make the joke, and it was definitely going to be me. Well, if, if he's not the only problematic person of the guest stars, is we do have Julie Chen as herself, and I believe the first episode of this. Uh, Julie Chen is the wife of Les Moonves, and Les Moonves is a monster and a harasser and an enabler of a number of harassers at the CBS television network. Yes, that is that is all accurate. A couple smaller ones. You have uh, Robert Machio, who I know from The Todd on Scrubs. He was a juror in uh, the ep- one of the episodes. And then one I didn't know was there is a uh, at one point uh, on karaoke, there's a gentleman singing a song, Veronica. Uh, at Java the Hut, that that gentleman is named Britt Daniel, and he is the lead singer of the indie rock band The Spoons. But Jerome, I, I know we've asked who our favorite guest stars have been on the show, but I think from conversations between you and I, I think we both have a standout winner for guest star on the show. Do you know who I'm speaking of? Uh, I don't know if I agree with you on this. I think Lucy Lawless is actually my pick. That is, the, that is exactly who I was talking about. Okay, I thought you might have been making reference to Michael Sarah, but I think Lucy Lawless. How does she not have a TV show? Like, in this era of peak TV, there are legitimately over 500 shows. I know she's done some guest starring work on Parks and Rec, and she was in my favorite episode of Veronica Mars. How does she not have her own TV show? Maybe it's by choice. I'm not, I'm not exactly sure. But if, if, it's, if, if it's a lack of interest or someone thinking she doesn't have the talent, boy, are they mistaken. Because she, she is an FBI agent. And, of course, you said your favorite episode of the show. And she knocks it out of the park. I couldn't even tell you one thing about the other FBI investigator in that show because she was so good. Like, I mean, she just kills it 
with the way that she talks about Veronica and like the way that Lamb reacts to her. I mean, it's so it's so perfect because she's so arrogant and she's so confident and so cocky. And even in the end, like she talks to Veronica about possibly joining the FBI. And I mean, it's just so perfect. The way that they cast this was so brilliant. Yes, I agree. And we we ask about our favorite episodes of the season. You've already said what yours is. Uh, my, my favorite episode was episode 18, I Am God. It's an episode that deals a lot with Veronica, who at this point in the show is reading a lot of Meg's emails for certain clues. Uh, she, her, her mind is really focused on this bus crash, and she's having some trouble sleeping because of it. But when she does fall asleep in class like that, she has these really ethereal, surreal kind of dreams where she's speaking to people on the bus uh, and those kind of dreams help her to, to think of other methods and, and help her find other clues or, or other theories behind the bus crash. And I thought it just really stood out from the rest of the season as something very unique. And I like the way that those dream sequences on the bus were done. It feels very David Lynchian. It feels like something directly out of Twin Peaks. And I think we mentioned in the first episode that that is a show that this show very clearly takes its influences from. And I think you see that in all those dream sequences. And I think you also see that with the graduation day dream, which we need to talk about. Yeah, let's talk about that real quickly. Veronica Mars does a very good job of of shooting things. So, you know, they're a scene. If it's not clear that this is a dream. Veronica wakes up and her parents are still together, happily, having breakfast together. Her father is still the sheriff. Veronica is with Logan. Uh, her and Wallace do not know who each other is. And the most striking thing is that Lily is still alive. So what did you make of this graduation day dream? Like it's the night before she wakes up for graduation. She has this dream. I, I think it's a fantastic way of showing what could have been. And... Part of the thing that Peak TV does is they they do these flashbacks or they do these kind of alternative things, and sometimes they do an entire episode of it. I'm really glad that this was just five to six minutes because I think it shows us so much about who Veronica could have been because we see how gullible she is, and I think that immediately tells us everything that we need to know about her character because she believes Duncan and and Logan when they when they're making this dumb dumb joke and these dumb references and Veronica believes them and the Veronica that we know that is actually there would not do that and I think we get a lot from Wallace here too because Wallace himself seems seems a little bit guarded but in a way he seems like a much stronger character in these five minutes and I would have been ver- would have been very curious if if they wrote Wallace more like this Wallace how the show would have turned out Hard to think that it wouldn't have been for the better, but maybe that's just me thinking out loud. Right. Um, There's a couple other things that I want to mention. I do want to talk about Logan's gaslighting of Hannah because I think I mentioned last last episode that I was not a fan of Veronica, of the shipping that goes on for Logan and Veronica. And this is another reason why, because I think that Logan's behavior in season two is generally reprehensible. And I think, again, they, they kind of regress his character. And I think the way that he treats Hannah is pretty, pretty shabby. And the fact that at first it is very clear that he is only going for her to, because her father could potentially testify against him. And then he actually does love her because that is a very common trope of these movies and TV shows. And then she gets sent off to Vermont, never to be heard from again. And there's, there's, again, there's no consequences for that. Right. And it's just, 
the way that they end this story is that this person goes to a different place other than Neptune, which is something they did with Duncan. They did it with her and they did it with Tessa Thompson. It, it is a little lazy when you kind of piece it all together. And for a show that's known for uh, does a pretty good job for bucking television tropes to see them use one again here was just a, a, a little sad. Yes. And I, I do want to end things on a positive note. Another one of my favorite episodes. I really liked season uh, two, episode 11. I liked Ain't No Magic Mountain High Enough. Very um, good. That is, that, is, that is the closest that Veronica Mars has ever gotten to Agatha Christie, which if you know who Agatha Christie is, the basic idea is that somebody gets murdered and there's a whodunit and there's always a scene where everybody's in the same room and the detective or the person kind of identifies everything that's going on. And this is pretty much Veronica Mars at the peak of her powers basically identifying not only who stole the $12,000, but also some of the other malfeasance that has been going on as well. This was so fantastic. I, I love the last 10 minutes of this episode because Veronica basically gets a teacher fired, basically gets a student fired, and basically lets Jackie off the hook. It's fantastic. That is fantastic. However, there is a hashtag problematic uh, moment in this episode. Oh, yes. I'll let you talk about it because I, I'm usually the one that handles the hashtag problematic stuff. And this is this is truly problematic. Yeah, I, there's at some point where I guess it's in the parking lot. There's a, a parent there to pick up their student from school that Dick Casablancas begins flirting with. And then once he starts fooling around with them, discovers that it is a transvestite. And this causes a lot of laughter from the other students, including his younger brother. Uh, and yeah, uh, just a... Some, some casual transvestite shaming here at the old Neptune High. Uh, the trans shaming is not good. I mean, it's it's reprehensible that this happened even in 2006. But looking at this through 2019 eyes, the trans panic or the gay panic that's going on. I mean, it is truly, truly awful. And for a show that, again, has tried to be progressive and seemingly is that. And I think you actually do get some maturity. I think there was an episode where Veronica is trying to help out the LGBTQ community. I think that actually, I think we get to see some of Veronica being better in that. But this, I mean, it's, it is just very, very bad. Yes, very bad. And I even think to a lesser extent, there's one episode I didn't really like was the one where they had like the, the pizza guy attacking people and there was threats of outing certain students. And then you even had certain gay students themselves that were like, they, they worked to force somebody to come out. Um, and then even part of the issue that, that needed to be resolved with Cassidy is he didn't want to come out as being molested, but the other two boys who were molested were going to drag him with them, kicking and screaming, even if he didn't want to, you know, the, Obviously, the choice for people to come out and speak against either their abusers or to come out as as gay is should be their own choice. And having it dragged out by other other third parties is not great. And it's not like they're they're posed as heroes, but I think this is something that is not a good look in, in this show whatsoever. Even when you do have those positive LGBTQ moments. Yeah, I mean, I think Veronica's reaction. Just to be clear, I think Veronica's reaction is better. I think the episode itself just doesn't play very well. And I think every time they try to handle issues like this, I think it just, it feels really awkward. And I think one of the great tensions that always exists in the show is, is this a neo-noir or is this a teen drama? And I think that trying to balance that has always been something the show has had difficulty with because if you're being a teen drama, then I think some of this stuff doesn't really play well. And if you're trying to be a neo-noir 
then I think when with Neo Noirs, I think you get into some very un PC territory because you're dealing with a lot of shady characters, and I think that's what happens here. And we really have not talked about the Fitzpatricks for good reason because I don't know what purpose they serve, Kevin. Like I'm trying, I keep trying to think of like what besides the fact that The Sopranos was really popular at this point, and they wanted to have a mob, not the Italian mob. But their 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 um, non union counterparts, the Irish mob, like I, I I keep trying to figure out like why are the Fitzpatrick's around, and I'm sure we're going to be talking about them in the future. But I just other than being nuisances, I don't th- their purpose in this season is very unclear to me. Sure, yeah, it's I mean it could it led a little bit to like the the Logan involvement with Hannah and it led to the reasoning behind Felix being dead, but it wasn't like this really strong connection I felt like that that needed to be there. It felt like a really unnecessary thing that just further muddied the waters. It already made it an, an overly complex season even more complex. And it was something that I just when I got I kind of threw my hands up when I was writing my notes about this because I was like, I really don't care about this Fitzpatrick family thing. Right. And yeah, I mean, that's the Irish mob for you. We still, there are two more guest stars that we still need to talk about. Oh, who are they? Michael Sarah and Alia Shawkat. They were the first ones I mentioned. I'm sorry. I'm terrible. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's, there's, there's nothing really to say about them except for that, that Michael Sarah was Michael Sarah and uh, Alia Shawkat was v- different from maybe, but did very, did very well in the role that she was given, which again was another, another case of rape. But it is worth mentioning that that is a case that it's actually pretty fitting to end on them too, because we're not done with that case. That is something that is going to be rediscovered in season three. And this episode uh, that they, that they were involved in was pretty much an introduction to Hearst college, which now that they have graduated high school, we need a new scenery for season three. And that is going to become Hearst college. Yeah. And my memories of season three are very vague and I'll be very curious to see how I react to season three upon a rewatch because I've definitely rewatched season one and two, at least two or three times season three. I think I've watched one time and that's it because it is, uh, it is definitely not my favorite season of television. Uh, Aliyah Shawkat is really awesome on a side note. And even though the new seasons of Arrested Development have generally been bad, she's been really good. Definitely. And uh, I'm just really excited to watch uh, Bash Howard all over again in season three. Ugh, I don't know, man. Season three is going to be rough. Uh, we'll see. We'll talk about it when we get there, though. But that is that is another season. This is season two. Overall thoughts on season two. The first half of season two, I think in a lot of ways, is better than season one. And I think it really climaxes with episode 11 and what they're able to do there and getting Duncan written off of the show. I think some of the subsequent episodes are very good as well. I mentioned the episode where they're at the carnival. I think once we get to the Hearst episode and after it really feels like it loses a little bit of steam. And I think there are certain aspects that I think really work. And I think there are other aspects that don't work. And I think part of the issue is that they're clearly trying to adjust to going to a new network and trying to close all of these loops and just trying to close everything out. And I think that is something that sort of works and sort of doesn't. So by the end of season two, I do not think it's as good as season one, but I think there are some real standout moments, some real standout episodes. And I think Kristen Bell is, is kind of the centerpiece. And the fact that she is able to do what she did, she definitely deserved an Emmy nomination because without her, the whole thing falls apart. It's a house of cards, so to speak. And 
I think if nothing else, I think Kristen Bell really kills it. And I think that even if some other things don't work, she does. And I think some of the casting that we've mentioned with Steve Gutenberg and Tessa Thompson, I also think that they kind of hit the nail on the head there. And some of the characters from last time, we really didn't talk a lot about Keith, but, you know, the, the steadying presence that he presents at all times, I think he also, again, just does a really solid job of playing this character. And I keep wondering myself, like, why hasn't he been on more TV shows? Not, not, not in starring roles, but I'm really surprised that he has not been, like, playing a similar role as either a father or someone in the background on more TV shows. Yeah, it's not a question I can't answer because I did find the side story with him and Sheriff Lamb to be very compelling anytime they were in a room together. They even kind of threw to the wayside that he wrote a book about the murder of Lily Kane and became a best-selling author. That story kind of goes away after her first few episodes, as does him dating Wallace's mom. Wallace's Jean- mom, in general, just disappears. And right. It's weird. It is weird. But yeah, any interplay that the two of them have, because it definitely portrays... Keith as somebody who truly is, who wants a position of sheriff to help bring people to justice uh, and is, and really it's more of a, a status symbol and a title for, for Sheriff Lamb. Uh, also caught with Madison feeling her up in, a, in an elevator to, to add more onto the pile of despicable things of shame that he does in season two. I mean, the Lamb family is not, is not great. And uh, they, they need to go on the Lamb, I guess. Yeah. Uh... Maybe that's why they named him Sheriff Lamb. It's almost it's almost like there's a connection there. It's almost like there is. Uh, my thoughts on season two, I think the strongest episodes of season two, there's A, more of them, and B, I think they're stronger than the strongest episodes of season one. I also found the, the, the bus crash story itself a little bit more compelling than the murder of Lily Kane. But the other extracurricular things, very hit and miss. And I think the one thing that saves them is the strength of the acting and, and uh, from the players to make those stories work better than they would in the hands of other people. I can't decide if I like it more than season one or not. I think the benefit season two has is you don't need to set the table and explain the backstories of all these other characters we already know. And I think the newer characters, the ones that's, that are around for the, for the long haul in season two anyways, are all really strong and, and done well. But as you can tell from listening to our episode, there are still a lot of problems, a lot of storylines that were confusing or just unnecessary. So overall, I, I enjoyed watching season two. I'm glad we watched it in a binging method because I just can't imagine going week to week and keeping up with all this stuff. I think if we went and did this like your lost podcast with two episodes, I, I part of me thinks I think we would come off a little bit more positively, especially in the first half with some of the episodes. But <laughs> it would just been too difficult to keep track of everything. And again, you're the guy who did the Lost podcast where you have to keep track of so much. And this feels just as intense. For sure. Yeah, it's a chore. And I think the, the it's very, very different in tone. And I think the other thing that makes that I liked about season two is the darker to- tone does make the stakes feel a little bit higher. It does raise the tension for the episodes and makes a lot of the cliffhangers land better than some of the cliffhangers in season one just from the stakes in general being a lot higher so take of that what you will i I mean i think that that is absolutely correct and i think that one of the big differences between this season and season three is i think there's just something about shows that are set in high school that fundamentally work better than seasons and shows that work in college and when we 
get to season three, I'm sure we'll get to some of that because I think I think it's I think it's generally been a problem for a lot of shows having to adjust from one to the other because season two it's so much easier to get your characters together and to have parents interacting with their kids and things like that. But I am sad to see that the high school location is going to go away. All right. Well, that ends our season two recap. Unless there's anything else you wanted to throw in, it's a kind of a speaking hour forever hold your peace moment. I am very curious to think to know what I'm going to think about season three on rewatching it because I think the first two seasons, even though I think I don't think season two is as good. I mean, these are iconic seasons of television with a lot of things going on, very memorable stuff. Kristen Bell is is incredible, and I, you can understand why she's been able to get so many opportunities in Hollywood getting the good place. Uh, She was on a Showtime show called House of Lies. You can see why she's had the TV career that she has based off of what she's done on Veronica Mars. For sure. And with that, Jerome, now is the floor for you to plug anything and everything your little heart desires. You can go and listen to the superhero Pantheon and hear what we have been saying about the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. You can find all of that on the real world feed. And the best part of that, Kevin, is I was trying to come up with any sort of connection between Veronica Mars and the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I could not find a single one in all of the movies. There are no connections between the Turtles and Veronica Mars, and that makes me sad. That uh, that explains why Veronica Mars is so good, given those movies are uh, not so good. The first, the very first movie that came out in 1990 is actually very good. The subsequent ones are definitely not. Although uh, Kevin Ash's Super Shredder is pretty awesome. I mean, not really. I mean, he's just there for like two minutes. I'll hear no no bad things spoken of Kevin Nash. But I bet he got paid five grand for it. So that's (laughs) that's right. Uh, and then you can follow me on Twitter at KFord13. And if you're on the Real World Podcasting website, you can go back to From Broadcast Depth. It was a podcast myself and my dear close personal friend, Ben Lundy, did where we covered all of Lost. Every single episode of the show, including supplemental materials, are all covered there in 63 episodes. The longest running show to date, although I have a feeling the Superhero Pantheon may one day usurp that number. Yes, that is the goal. We are trying to usurp your number of podcast episodes yes that's the only reason you are doing this is my understanding that is the only i mean why would we have any other reason to do it i I can't think of a single one and let me tell you kevin spoiler alert superhero movies are not going anywhere no you don't think i've heard they're uh they don't make all these gobs and gobs of money no i mean kevin feige is probably literally living in a house of gold at this point well he's the lesser of the kevin f's on this podcast wow Heavy shots fired. And on that note, thank you so much, everybody, for listening. And we will return in the beginning of November to discuss Veronica Mars Season 3. It's funny, Kevin. We forgot to talk about Troy, but eh, it's...